back to the 2019 edition of OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. I know it's been too long since the last time I released an episode, but I haven't forgotten about the podcast. I've recorded a number of episodes and I'm going to start releasing them again. This is episode number 64, the second part of a series in which I talk about the Open vSwitch database. The first part, in episode number 55, was about the server and the network protocol. This part is about the C client library, how it represents data, and how it interacts with the database. I even throw in a dissection of an example JSON RPC request for a transaction. You might want to take a look at the episode notes for a link to that. On to the talk. weeks ago we had a talk on OVSDB and what it is and how the server works and uh, how you uh, set up schemas and so on. Uh, today I'm also going to talk about OVSDB but more from the client side. So uh, there, it's a general purpose database so you, you could write clients for any language and I know that there have been third-party clients written for Go and for other languages, but uh, OVS actually comes with two OVSDB client libraries, one's for C, uh, and that's the one that was uh, uh, written uh, the earliest, and I tend to think of it as the one that has uh, sort of the, the highest quality and the uh, best performance and the most support. And then the tree also includes one that's written in Python, uh, that one uh, is uh, also, uh, I'd, I'd say that, it, that, that it's pretty good. It uses the same sort of model as the, the C library that I'm going to spend most of my time talking about. Uh, it was actually written by sort of hand translating it from C um, over a very long afternoon uh, one day. And since I wrote it and I'm not a very uh, great Python programmer, it's probably not particularly Pythonic, uh, but it, it works, uh, and we have some demons that use it, uh, and uh, other uh, more Pythonic-type programmers have taken a look at it and made uh, some improvements over the years. Let's see. So, like I said, I'm primarily going to be talking about the C client library and a little bit about some of the programs that, that use that C client library. Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, you need to keep in mind about the C client library is that it, it's really only currently suitable for uh, single-threaded environments. Uh, OVS vSwitchD uses it, and vSwitchD is multi-threaded, but vSwitchD only accesses the uh, vSwitchD only accesses OVSDB through a single thread, and and so it works out okay for that. Uh, there are some use cases where we would like to be able to use a single uh, OVSDB client from multiple threads in C, and I've been thinking about ways that we can improve it to make that uh, uh, more feasible, uh, but none of it has been implemented. So uh, these, uh, these libraries, uh, this C client library, is the one that uh, all the uh, OVS tools and uh, daemons that access OVSDB use. So uh, this is the basis for OVS VSKittle, uh, OVN NBKittle, and SBKittle, uh, and OVS vSwitchD itself. On the other hand, uh, OVS DB server isn't using it uh, because it's not a client, it's the server, and there are some uh, uh, fairly different uh, requirements. So uh, the 
C client library imposes a particular interface uh, over uh, OVSDB that isn't a traditional database interface. So uh, you won't find the client library having uh, functions, for example, to do queries. Um, and it, it doesn't have uh, traditional functions to uh, do uh, uh, transactions either. So what it presents is something more like a, a set of uh, a, a set of data structures that, that matches up to uh, the a particular schema. So if you want to use the C client library, then uh, at the time you build your program, uh, you have to run your your schema that you're interested in, the database that you want to access, uh, through uh, what we call the the IDL compiler. And that compiler takes the schema and it transforms uh, each of the tables in the schema into a C struct that corresponds to it. So, uh, for example, in uh, the vSwitch schema, we have a table called port that represents a port in a switch. So uh, the, the IDL compiler transforms that port table uh, into a struct that's called uh, obvsrec underscore port. The obvsrec underscore bit is just an arbitrary prefix that uh, actually gets applied to uh, everything in that database, uh, and that's one of the arguments to the IDL compiler. And then everything else is automatically transformed. So uh, the port table has a, a bunch of columns in it. Each of those columns gets transformed into uh, one or more uh, members of the struct. And the, the, the types and the, the quantities uh, of those depend on the, the type that it has in the schema. So uh, if, if you kind of look at uh, what you've got in your schema and then what you end up with in your struct, uh, you, you get things like uh, a column of integer type becomes an int64 uh, in the struct. Uh, a real column becomes uh, a double. Um, and, and so those are the sorts of things that are really obvious. Uh, strings become character pointers. Um, when you have a column that is a set type, uh, so that it can have uh, more than one value, then uh, generally that, that gets uh, transformed into a pointer uh, to whatever type it should be. Uh, and in addition, there is another member that says how many elements there are. So, uh, for example, port has uh, a column in it called interfaces, which points to all the uh, interfaces that the port contains. So in the struct, that is uh, um, one one member called interfaces, which is a pointer to the interfaces, uh, and a second member called n underscore interfaces. Uh, since OVSDB uh, supports maps, uh, the, there's also provision for including maps. And those sort of, in general, end up as uh, three uh, members. So you would have the number of elements, and then a pointer to the keys, and then a pointer to the values. But we don't actually use those much in uh, OVSDB, except in uh, one particular case where we fairly often have string-to-string -string maps. So uh, that, that's a special case for the IDL compiler, because uh, OVS already has a pretty good data type for string-to-string -string maps called SMAP. And so uh, the IDL compiler just trans transforms that kind of a column into a, a, a single uh, member called uh, that, that, that's an SMAP uh, for the entire set. So uh, the most interesting uh, bit there might actually be that uh, OVSDB has reference types where 
uh, one column can point to uh, one or more uh, instances of, of some other kind of row. So like I said, uh, a, a port has a, a column called interfaces that uh, contains, uh, that, that points to interface rows. So uh, in the OVS rec port, uh, you'll find uh, a, a column or a, a couple of members, one that's N interfaces, and interfaces itself is a, a pointer to an array of, uh, of these OVS rec interfaces. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you start from some, uh, some instance of one of these structs and it uh, has references to other tables, then you can just follow the pointers uh, and in a, a pretty natural way uh, traverse a whole database the, the way you would uh, traverse any sort of natural uh, C uh, set of, uh, of linked data structures through, through pointers. And uh, the, the IDL is, is careful to make sure that, uh, for example, it, it's not possible to end up with wild pointers uh, or, or null pointers. Uh, it, uh, it's uh, careful about that. And so you can be pretty confident as you step through one of these data structures that you don't have to look for the landmines. Uh, so, okay, uh, now I've, I've sort of explained what the data structures are, but you might be wondering, so how do I find uh, any instance of, of one of these tables to begin with? Uh, and the, the answer there is that uh, in addition to the types, there's uh, a bunch of macros uh, that allow you to iterate through uh, all of the structs that represent rows in a particular table. So, uh, for example, uh, there's a, there, there would be for vSwitchD, you could uh, use OVS rec for each interface and that would allow you to uh, iterate through all of the uh, rows in the interface table. Now, in practice, uh, because of the way that the vSwitchD schema is set up and the way that we tend to set up a lot of the schemas in OVSDB, uh, really what you end up doing is you take some sort of root table, like for example in the vSwitchD schema, you would take the open vSwitchD table, um, and that actually points directly or indirectly to all the other rows that you're likely to be interested in. Uh, so you could start from open vSwitch, and that would point to all the bridges, and each of those bridges would point to the ports they contain, and each of those ports would point to the interfaces they contain, um, and uh, that, that tends to be the way, uh, that, that's the, the most, most natural way uh, to uh, traverse one of these uh, databases. That's the way that the client uh, presents a database uh, to, uh, to, to C code. Uh, you, you might be wondering, so what is it actually doing uh, to, to get this? So if you remember in our discussion of OVSDB before, uh, it has this concept called a monitor. And a monitor is where uh, an OVSDB client can tell the server that it wants to know all the data or some subset of data in of OVSDB table or, or set of tables. So that's what the client library is doing. Uh, when you point the client library to a database instance, it starts up a monitor and it uses that to fetch everything that's in uh, all the relevant tables. And so it, it takes that data and it transforms it into the appropriate data structures. Um, and then uh, every time you tell the uh, the client library, uh, every time you give it a chance to sort of uh, look at the connection and, and retrieve its messages, it's going to uh, sort of pick up the updates from the database server and it's going to apply those to the uh, in-memory uh, data structures. And uh, because of the way the monitor is set up, 
it means that uh, the client library is always able to present a consistent snap snapshot of what's in the database. It, it should also, also be a, uh, um, a recent snapshot uh, because the, the database server always sends the updates to the client uh, as soon as the, the changes actually occur. Um, and because the monitor also uh, only sends the deltas, it's also uh, uh, fairly efficient. As small changes occur to the database, uh, the, those small changes get sent uh, directly uh, to the client uh, and it, it's able to, uh, to, to apply them uh, cheaply. So uh, there, there's also some details behind the scenes so that uh, if the database is changing so fast that, uh, that, it, that the network between the database and the client is not able to catch up, then uh, it, it sort of backs off and uh, when there's enough lull in the change that it's able to, uh, to represent it um, in, in the bandwidth available, uh, then it will send that, uh, that update. Uh, the sort of the alternative, the, the naive way uh, to do this would uh, result in the, the server sort of queuing uh, a data and keeping buffers that just expanded infinitely uh, and eventually the database server would uh, run out of memory. Uh, th this is something that we, we actually ran into at, at one point, uh, but I, I believe that we've come up with a, a strategy of, of back off uh, here that uh, should, should allow that to, uh, to fairly uh, gracefully uh, work out anyway. I've mentioned how a C program can traverse one of these databases just by starting from some table and then uh, following pointers. Uh, there's a few uh, subtleties here that uh, are, are probably uh, worth mentioning. So uh, one, one is that uh, if your, your client code that's using the library uh, needs to uh, retain pointers to any of these data structures that represent the database, that's pretty risky uh, because uh, suppose your code uh, uh, does this and then uh, you call into the client library, it retrieves uh, um, some sort of update from the server that says that that row was deleted, then the client library is going to free that record and uh, suddenly uh, you've, got a, uh, um, you've got a pointer uh, to freed memory. So uh, the, the usual strategy that uh, the code that uses the client library takes is it, it tends to uh, not assume that that data uh, in, the, uh, in the database is going to uh, remain there from one uh, main loop to the next. Instead, it, it, if there's data it needs to keep, then it, uh, it makes a copy of it and uh, stores it in whatever sort of internal form is appropriate. Uh, so this sounds really inefficient that you're essentially making a, a copy, uh, a second copy of everything in the database uh, in, in your memory. Uh, in practice, it isn't quite as bad as that because usually what you find is that uh, the, the data in the schema, uh, while it's appropriate for, uh, for the user and it's a, a good representation for them, it, it isn't exactly the form that you want uh, to uh, be, be using uh, actually in your, in your program. The, you need the data usually in at least a slightly different form. So you often have to make a second copy in any case. Um, but the, the real disadvantage here uh, that the, the library hasn't really uh, overcome entirely uh, is that uh, 
the, the, the client library can tell you that, that something changed in the in-memory representation, uh, but it isn't very good at telling you exactly what changed. So uh, usually uh, the, the way that we use this client library is uh, essentially uh, you, you run through your main loop, and if the client library tells you that something changed, then uh, the code tends to go through uh, the, the entire representation of the database that it cares about and, and sort of compare it against uh, whatever uh, it, it expected to be there. It, it's pretty inefficient. Um, it usually, in our experience, is, is not actually a big deal. Uh, simply because we're, we're not dealing with super large uh, databases. Like, for example, the vSwitchD database, usually that just contains information about, for example, the ports and bridges on a single system. Usually that's a few thousand records at most. Uh, now, there are situations where it, it's more important to be able to tell what changed in an incremental fashion. The client library has a limited ability to do that through a feature called change tracking. Uh, you can register with the client library that you want it to keep track of changes in uh, one or more tables. And if you do that, then it'll keep a sort of something sort of like a log of what's been added and deleted uh, for the user of the client library to retrieve and examine and eventually discard. It's not what I consider a very graceful uh, mechanism, and I think that there are better mechanisms that we could come up with. So far, uh, there hasn't been enough pressure to do that that we've actually gone ahead and implemented them. And then finally, uh, the last limitation of the client library that I want to highlight is that uh, these in-memory records, while they're convenient for traversing and for examining data, uh, they don't provide a direct way uh, for uh, the, the user of the library to modify data. Um, and so they're, they're always presented to the user in a, a form that, that's tagged with const. Uh, if the user just goes and starts overriding this data, then uh, the, the client library isn't really able to cope with that. Um, and so uh, we've provided a, a more structured mechanism uh, for uh, modifying data uh, via the, the client library. That structured mechanism is uh, called a, a transaction. And it corresponds to a transaction in the JSON RPC protocol for the database. The way it works is uh, any given uh, instance of the client library can prepare a, a single transaction at a time. Um, you, you can have more than one uh, transaction in flight uh, to the database engine, to the database server, uh, but uh, only, uh, you can only be operating on a single transaction and preparing to send it uh, to the database server. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about the, the life cycle of a transaction. So in the first step, uh, you call a, an IDL, a, a database client function, uh, that, that starts a transaction. And uh, really, that, that just allocates a little bit of memory that prepares uh, for uh, the, the client to sort of keep track of the changes you're making. So at that point, um, each of these uh, tables uh, in the schema it has some functions associated with it uh, for inserting and deleting records. So if you need to insert a new record uh, into the database, then you suppose it's, say, a port record. Then you would call, uh, for example, OVS rec port create. And that will return a, a, freshly, uh, a freshly allocated and uh, default initialized uh, instance of an OVS rec port and prepare to send it uh, to the database server. 
and, and then you can call a, a set of functions to uh, initialize the, um, the, the columns in it. You could call, for example, OVS rec port set interfaces if you wanted to set the interfaces column. And there's a, a, a set of functions uh, or, or one or more functions that can be used to, uh, to change uh, or, or to initialize uh, each, each of those columns in that table. Uh, so uh, there's also a, a function that you can use to delete records uh, in a table. So you might call, for example, uh, OVS rec port delete. Now, those functions are actually not very useful, and uh, our, our users of the client library hardly ever use them. And, and that's because uh, in most cases, we make use of the OVSDB feature uh, for uh, garbage collection. Meaning that uh, if there's uh, if there's no record, if there's no row that references a, a row, then uh, that row that has no references, the database server will automatically delete it. And we found in practice that that's the the easiest way uh, to to handle this sort of thing. Uh, and then uh, if even if you're not inserting or deleting rows, uh, you might want to modify rows. So you can use those same functions that I was talking about. Uh, to initialize a row that you've inserted uh, to, to modify columns uh, in a row. So uh, each of these functions is not actually sending anything uh, to the database server. Each of these functions is just modifying the in-memory representation of the database. So at, at some point, you'll decide that you've done all the modifications you want. And so at that point, you can call a function uh, either to abort the transaction uh, or to commit it. Abort is not very interesting. It just means that the in-memory representation uh, gets all of these all these changes reversed. So commit is the interesting one, and that's the one that you would normally uh, um, normally call. So what that does is it uh, takes all these changes that you've uh, you've composed. Um, it it turns them into a, a JSON RPC uh, um, call, uh, and it, it sends that off uh, to the database server. So uh, once it's done that, then it does the same thing as abort. Um, that is, it, it takes uh, all the changes that you made to the in-memory representation of the database, and it reverses them. Um, it, it's as if you never made them. So uh, at this point, uh, you've got this transaction. It's on its way to the database server. And uh, any of the changes you made, they, they no longer show up in your, uh, uh, your representation of the database. And at this point, it, it also returns immediately to the caller. Um, and so you get to go, go along with uh, whatever you're doing in your program while uh, the database server uh, receives and thinks about uh, and returns some sort of a response to the transaction. So later on, there's, there's, some other, there's some later trip through the main loop of your program where you call into the client library, and the client library uh, receives the uh, response from the database server. And the database server can have one of several responses. Uh, one might be that uh, your, uh, your transaction uh, was accepted and applied, um, and uh, in addition, uh, here's the, uh, here, here are the changes uh, that, that occurred to the database as, uh, as a result of that. Um, another one might be uh, that there was a consistency problem. In other words, that uh, there was some kind of a race between uh, the changes that you made and the changes that somebody else made to the database. And uh, basically, that other uh, transaction won. And so you need to uh, retry your transaction um, by uh, examining the database, seeing what further changes need to be made. I mean, 
maybe that other client actually did the same thing you already wanted to do, so maybe your transaction is moot, um, or, or maybe it needs to be updated. Um, and uh, so uh, you might need to try again. There can actually be a couple of other uh, uh, things that can happen too. Um, one is that uh, the, the database connection might have dropped. So uh, for example, suppose there was a networking problem and, uh, and the, the database server uh, couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't return a reply. Uh, so the, the client library will notify you of that and then you need to retry it again uh, too. Um, and there's, there's actually a funny corner case that's a little hard uh, to deal with, but doesn't matter that much in practice. What can happen is that you sent your transaction to the database, the database server accepted it and committed it uh, durably, wrote it to disk, etc. Um, and then only at that point uh, did the connection to the database drop. So, uh, so that means that you never actually got a proper reply. And, uh, there was, from your point of view, there was just a networking problem. So it can actually happen that, uh, that your transaction committed, um, but you get an error back. So uh, in that case, what, the way the client typically perceives it is that there is an error and it needs to retry. Um, but it, uh, when it goes to look at the database, then it'll generally find uh, that whatever it did had actually happened. Uh, because, for example, you might have wanted to I don't know, add a port uh, to the uh, configuration. And when you go and, and you try it again, you'll find that the port was already there. Uh, that can be a little confusing. Uh, it, it's difficult to distinguish that from, uh, say, some other client uh, trying to do the same thing at the same time and, um, and, and interfering. Uh, and there, there is not a good general solution uh, to this in OVSDB. Uh, in databases, generally, there are sort of partial solutions, but in, in practice, uh, we haven't found this to be a big problem, so I've, I've never uh, gone to the trouble of implementing a more general solution for it. I have a question on the transactions. Yeah. So you said the transaction can fail because of, of a race, obviously. Yeah. There's an inconsistency in the database. What determines an inconsistency? Does the transaction carry clauses that indicate um, what fields match? Is it if the database changed at all, or is it just the fields that it changes changed? So that, that's a great question, and it's what I'm going to go into next. Okay, perfect. Yeah, thanks for the uh, segue there. Transactional consistency. Usually people talk about uh, database transactional consistency uh, in terms of uh, four properties, the, the so-called ACID properties. And when people say ACID, they're, they're thinking of that word as, a, uh, as an acronym. So the A stands for uh, atomic, meaning that uh, a transaction uh, either fully succeeds uh, or, uh, or it doesn't happen at all. So OVSDB uh, automatically uh, supplies uh, atomicity. Uh, the C stands for consistency, uh, and that uh, means that each part of your transaction is in reference to a consistent state of the database. It's, it's not working on, part of your transaction isn't working on state A of the database, part of it working on, for example, a state B, that they're all in reference to the, the same state. Uh, the I is isolation. Uh, OVSDB can't automatically supply isolation. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna talk about how you, uh, how you deal with that and, and, uh, and, and how that works. Uh, but before I get to that, the D just stands for durability meaning that once you apply a transaction uh, to the database, it stays there. Uh, OVSDB provides durability optionally, um, and in, in practice, uh, it has enough durability, you might say. Uh, but let, let's get back to uh, isolation. 
So uh, suppose we have uh, a transaction A, and it, it sees a particular value 1 in a column, and then it increments it so that it writes, uh, writes back a value of 2. And suppose we have another transaction B that, that's running at the same time, and it's trying to do the same thing. So it also sees that there's a 1 there, and then it decides to write a 2 there uh, to increment it uh, by, by 1. So uh, suppose that these transactions run with isolate, with, without isolation, so that both of them see 1 and both of them write 2. Well, uh, if, if they're indeed both are trying to uh, increment it, then the, the correct value that they write should be 3, because we should have added 1 to the column twice. And so that's the, the, the problem of isolation. So if you use sort of a traditional database, like a SQL database, that supplies uh, isolation automatically, uh, then uh, what, what's going to happen is, uh, in, in SQL, you would start this out by saying, I'm going to start a transaction. Um, and then you would use a select statement uh, to read what the value is there. It would give you the 1. And then uh, you would use a, an update statement to write a 2 back, and then you would commit your transaction. And so uh, a traditional SQL server, it would be able to, to tell that, um, that it, when one of these transactions runs, it, it would be able to, to succeed. And then in the second one, it would realize that after you did your select, um, the, the results of the select changed. So when you tried to write back to that column, it would abort your transaction saying there was a transactional consistency problem. Um, OVSDB just doesn't have this mechanism. If, if you try this with OVSDB, uh, if you tell it, okay, read what's in this column, um, and then you tell it in a separate transaction, because you can't, you can't combine these sorts of things in a transaction, if you told it in a separate transaction, write back that value 2, it has no way uh, to, to connect these two, the, the read and the write. Uh, it will not be able to, uh, to automatically uh, abort either transaction, even though they're, they're writing based on uh, bad information. So uh, instead, uh, in OVSDB, the clients themselves have to be responsible for ensuring uh, transactional isolation. Uh, and the way you do that is by adding what I tend to think of as assertions uh, to your transactions that do writes. Uh, so in this case, uh, your, uh, each of these transactions, A and B, uh, they, would, they would start out by, uh, some, through some mechanism, read the database. Uh, normally, uh, most commonly, that's with monitors. You could also use a, um, a transaction that did a select. That, that's fine, too. Um, but when you, when you go to do your write, then you would actually put two operations into that uh, transaction. The first operation would be an assertion that the column's current value is 1. And uh, if the column's current value isn't 1, then uh, that assertion automatically aborts the transaction, and it won't go further. So uh, what happens here is that one of your transactions, uh, uh, your transaction A, for example, will succeed. And then the second one, when you run it, it'll hit this assertion that the value is still 1. It'll see that it's changed to 2, and it'll abort. And at that point, the client will uh, re-examine the data in the, uh, in the database. It'll see that there's a 2 there now. And so it'll write a new transaction uh, that says, first, assert that the value is 2, and then write a 3. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the transactions are isolated, but, but only because the, the clients are smart enough to do that. 
what I want to do now is uh, go through a, a, a more a more detailed example that uh, actually shows the uh, um, the a, a real transaction that uh, OVS uh, uh, VSCTL uh, would uh, would would implement. Here, uh, what I'm showing you on the screen is uh, first of all an OVS VSCTL command. It's a simple command. It just says uh, add a new bridge, call it uh, bridge zero, and then below it, what I'm showing you is the the transaction that a real OVS VSCTL call sent uh, to the database server to implement that. So I'm not showing you uh, the, the contents of the database that's modifying, uh, but it, it's pretty simple. It's a database that was freshly initialized as more or less empty by running make sandbox. So uh, this is uh, creating uh, the first bridge in an otherwise empty database. So. What we've got here is the, the arguments to the, the transact JSON RPC call. So uh, the, the arguments are an array, and the first element in the array are the, is the, the name of the, the database that's being modified, so that's the open vSwitch database. And then after that, the, the other elements of the array are each an operation uh, to include in the transaction. So uh, the first uh, operation here is a wait. Um, call, and uh, what, what that, that that is one of those assertions that I was talking about. So uh, it, it's called wait uh, because you can actually make uh, OVSDB run transactions that are delayed until uh, conditions are satisfied. Um, in this case, though, uh, it gives it a, a timeout of zero. So if the condition isn't satisfied immediately, then it will abort the transaction. So what it's waiting for, or what it's asserting is that uh, in the open vSwitch table uh, that the, the column bridges um, is, uh, let's see, that the column bridges is equal to the, uh, the, the, the empty, empty set of bridges. Um, and then that that applies only to a single row uh, of the table. Now, the open vSwitch table only ever has a single row, which is the configuration for the, uh, uh, for the entire vSwitch. So that, that makes sense. So what this is really asserting is that there are currently no bridges. Uh, that makes sense because it's expecting uh, pretty soon to, uh, to insert uh, the, the very first bridge into the table. Uh, and uh, let's see, the operations after the, the wait are kind of in a random order, the, the order doesn't matter very much. So you can see that there's an insert operation into the bridge table. Uh, that, uh, that operation, it, it creates the bridge with the, with the name BR0, as we asked, and then it, it also creates it with a single port uh, that, that points to this, this funny thing called a named UUID. And all that means is that, uh, is that this port is going to be the one that we created somewhere else in the transaction. And as you can see, it matches this, this port uh, operation here where we're inserting a, a new port into the port table. And uh, the port has uh, named BR0 uh, because in OVS, um, every bridge always has at least one port uh, that is named uh, after the bridge itself. And the, the port points to another one of these named UUIDs. And if we look down here, we should be able to see 
that that we're creating a yeah that the we're creating an interface that, that matches that. Uh, so this port has a single interface. It is also named BR0. It has type internal, meaning that it, it uh, it's internal uh, to the um, to the bridge that it, it doesn't represent say physical interface on the system. So that's that's all the insert operations up here. Let, let's see what other operations we've got. Uh, we are oh yeah. So uh, now that now that we've uh, asserted here at the top that we've got no bridges currently, uh, we're also updating uh, the bridges column in the Open vSwitch table uh, so that it points to this, uh, this bridge that we just created um, up here a little bit. Uh, so that makes sense. And if we were doing this update uh, without having done that assertion, then we could race with some other VSKittle instance that is, for example, creating a different bridge or creating another bridge with the same name. And then toward the end here, we have a couple more specialized types of things. So uh, the open vSwitch uh, table in the open vSwitch uh, schema has a couple columns that are, uh, are designed to allow clients to figure out when the changes that they've made to the schema, when they've, when they've uh, updated the configuration, uh, when, when those have actually taken effect. So uh, the, this uh, operation here called mutate is taking the uh, the value in the, the next config column in the open vSwitch table and incrementing it by one. Uh, and that, that happens atomically. Uh, it, it's a way uh, to get past this, uh, this limitation on how you have to first uh, retrieve the value and then assert on it uh, and then, then write it and then write it back. Um, but it, it only lets you do certain operations, like in this case, um, it's just incrementing it by one. So it's using mutate to increment next config. Um, and then it's, uh, it, it's also uh, going to uh, read back uh, and retrieve uh, the, the, value, the, the new value of the column. Um, and, and so what, what happens is that uh, if, you, uh, in, if, if you invoke OVS VSKittle in the most normal way, then it'll only exit, it'll only return uh, to the command prompt after whatever changes you made have actually been put into effect. And that's because uh, it can be pretty confusing if, for example, you add a new port um, and then you try to do ifconfig on it, but it hasn't actually uh, a finished being added. So uh, this, these are the sort of semantics that people normally want. So uh, it, it retrieves this, this value that it, it set. And then uh, once, once the transaction commits, then it, it's going to wait for OVS vSwitchD to finish that configuration and, and write that value back into a column called current config. And so it, it waits for current config to, uh, to be at least whatever it uh, set next config to. And then finally, we have this, uh, tra- uh, this operation at the end that is this, uh, this common operation. I, I mentioned this before when we were talking about OVSDB. So this is just a human readable kind of thing and uh, this actually ends up being written into the on-disk uh, database log. And so if you ever look at the database log later and you're wondering, okay, what, what was the, the purpose of this transaction? Then it'll tell you. It'll, it, it says that uh, uh, somebody uh, running at the, the bash command prompt uh, ran OVS VSKittle add BR. And uh, that's, that's what the purpose was here. Um, and uh, your controller, uh, if it's well written, will uh, provide that sort of uh, uh, additional uh, semantics to let you know uh, what the uh, controller was trying to do. So that's the entire JSON RPC transaction that, that corresponds to a, 
uh, adbr command. Uh, so that that's the end of my notes, so I, I can take questions. I think it might be just because it's um, the, the details could be easy to miss. Is the there's like the underscore UUID and then there's the non underscore UUID. Worth mentioning that the you know, like where the where command. Yeah. Okay. There's a couple different uses of UUID here. Um, one is that uh, when when we've got something that's a, a JSON array here in square brackets and has a UUID in quotes followed by an actual UUID, uh, then that, that's how the JSON RPC for OBSDB uh, represents the value of a UUID. So uh, what, this, what this overall thing here is saying is that the column named underscore UUID equals this particular UUID. And uh, underscore UUID, that's a, a standard column that uh, OVSDB provides in every table uh, that uniquely identifies the row. So if you insert a row into OVSDB, it'll get a, a randomly generated UUID that, uh, well, uh, as long as there's any justice in the universe, will in fact be different from every other row ever. And, and then I think it might be worth just getting into a little bit more detail about named UUID and the reason that those exist. Yeah, um, so that that's actually uh, pretty related to what I was talking about before. So the OVSDB server is what uh, assigns these row UUIDs, these underscore UUIDs. And until you've told the OVSDB server uh, to insert a row and it's told you uh, what the UUID of that row is, you can't predict it. So uh, the sort of the natural way to do this sort of thing would be to uh, insert all of these uh, mutually referential uh, rows, uh, the bridge, the port, the interface, et cetera, um, and, and just use whatever UUID uh, they were going to have. But you can't know what that UUID is until, uh, uh, until the database server has told you. So the, the protocol has this, uh, this feature where um, you can tell it, uh, I, I don't know what the, uh, what the UUID for this row is going to be, but for the purpose of this transaction, I'm going to call it whatever the string is. Um, and, and so uh, th that's why we have these UUID names. That means uh, that, that designates a, a, a UUID or a row for the purpose of a transaction. And then uh, named UUID is, is a way to uh, re refer back to that as, as necessary elsewhere within the transaction. So it's kind of an indirection mechanism. And, and I don't think that the name UUID name actually, like that has a UUID in it, but it can actually be any string. Yeah, that could be Alice or Bob or, or whatever string um, was convenient. And they just happened to contain UUIDs in this case because it was convenient for the client library to do it that way. So this message can be dumped at the JSON RPC interface? This output here, this is what you get if you add uh, dash v JSON RPC uh, to the command line on OVSVSKittle. So uh, that will cause uh, OVSVSKittle to log uh, to the console and everywhere else the full contents of all the JSON RPC messages it sends or receives. So you'll get this in a much harder to read form because it won't include any line feeds. Um, but uh, you'll, you'll also get all, all the other uh, transactions that it makes. Uh, you'll get the, the data that it, uh, it, it sent and received to uh, retrieve the initial contents of the database and the database schema. Um, there's, there's actually three or four round trips that, that happen when you do uh, OVS VS Kittle command. Basic question. So just to understand this, 
So we have the VS curl application, which is linking the OVSDB client library, and it's calling the APIs provided by the client library. And the client library is actually making the, the JSON RPC call with the with the OVSDB. That's right. And that's what it prints. Like if you give the if the minus V JSON RPC, yeah, you actually print what's actually happening at the IPC. Yeah, that's right. But but I don't think OBSD is kind of links with OBSD client, right? It's it's links against the IDL. So there might be some confusion here. Uh, I've been talking about the client, meaning the client library, the the the, the whole time. Um, it it doesn't link against the OBSDB client executable, um, which is just a thin wrapper around a, a lot of these JSON RPC calls. Yeah, and I think that's something that some people have. There's been confusion in the past is that all of these these like OVSB switch D and OVSBS kettle they all use the CIDL they don't have there's not any like special calls that they're using they're just using the same interface that anyone else would want to use if they're writing a C program. Right. There's no specialized or privileged interface for uh, any of the OVS programs. They they all go through the the same public interface that's uh, documented in RFC seven zero four seven. I think it might be worth if you if you can do it off the top of your head discussing a little bit about the IDL because it's interesting how it generates you know mappings that are specific to a particular type of database. Yeah, you know I could uh, uh, pretty easily uh, pull up a, uh, an, an example of that. Um, here's an example of a. A, a particular table in the uh, OVSDB database. So uh, this this table has uh, three columns in it. One of it, uh, one's called mappings, and so that that column is an integer to integer map. So uh, you, you can see that the the, the key here, um, and the, there's two arrays, uh, one of keys, one of uh, values, and then a, a number, so that you can iterate through all of them. And then it has two string columns. Um, and in the in in the database uh, schema, uh, it it's marked as as always being present, not being optional. So uh, the compiler actually adds a, a helpful comment here, so that uh, when you're writing code, you you can look at the the header file and, and realize, oh, I don't have to worry about checking whether this uh, particular column is uh, is null or not. I can always just uh, automatically use it. And then. Uh, if you if you look at the list of functions that, that go along uh, with this uh, particular table, uh, there are uh, there there are several of them. Um, so uh, you can uh, call this function if you have a row UUID and you want to get the record for it. That, that's something you rarely want to do, but it's available. Uh, the the function or the macros I mentioned earlier are for uh, iterating through uh, all the instances, uh, all the rows uh, for a, a particular table. Um, there's also uh, functions for uh, modifying uh, rows that we should be able to find somewhere here. Um, yeah, so if you've got a row and you're initializing or, or you want to modify it within a transaction, then uh, you can use these, these functions to do it. Um, and then there's some more esoteric uh, uh, types of, uh, of functions, uh, like uh, um, OVSDB server allows you to uh, only conditionally monitor uh, some uh, some rows based on uh, values of their columns. So uh, you can uh, use uh, functions uh, to, to set up that sort of thing. Um, there are, are functions that allow you uh, to uh, up, do sort of partial updates to, uh, to uh, columns uh, by 
uh, adding or deleting uh, individual keys or, or values. Um, most of these functions never get called. They're, most of these functions are not actually useful for any given column, but the IDL always generates all of them on the off chance that you might want to use them. So here, here's an example of a, of, a more, uh, of a table with more rows or more, more columns in it. So the, the bridge table has, has tons of, of columns. Uh, here, here's an example of one that's a, a string to string map and the IDL generates the SMAP data structure that's a lot easier to work with than say two arrays of pointers to strings um, and, and, and so on. Um, and here you can see a, a reference to a, another table so that if the NetFlow column is, is non-null, then you just follow the pointer uh, to the, the NetFlow settings for a particular bridge. Probably obvious, but the, this file is generated based on um, the, the schema. And so if you do like a get grep, like if you're, or if you're looking at the source code, then, the, then, then like get grep won't ref, re, return any of the database calls. And so, but it's one of these things that's kind of obvious in hindsight, but sometimes when you're debugging something, it can be yeah. surprising when you can't find the, the call. In the second week, actually, I, I had not, I hadn't compiled my workspace, right. and my C scope was like, I was looking all over for this OS right? so. Hmm. Yeah, this, this code is pretty good at adding the prefix to everything relevant. So if you see anything with an obvious rec underscore prefix, it's probably defined in this header file or the .c file. And then, of course, there are um, there are similar headers for like the uh, um, the OVN uh, schemas. So th it's all generated by the same program. So question. So essentially, when we say the library, the code is the header file and the .c file, and that's what you link against your application and call these APIs. Yeah, those APIs do call into sort of a, a central library that, that does a lot of the, the heavy work. Uh, but this is the, the main user interface to it. Yeah, if, if you look, then, then you can see that the, so what, what these functions tend to call into are uh, in the OVSDB IDL.h uh, header file, uh, which is sort of the public interface. And then there's a, a, a more complicated sort of private interface that normal users wouldn't want to look at unless you're actually working on the IDL code and improving the, the client library interface. Uh, the other confusing thing here might be that I chose the term IDL to refer to this, but it's not really a conventional IDL. I, I think that's probably a misnomer, and if I cared a lot about consistency, I would probably pick a, another term, and probably Justin hates it because he really likes consistency. Any other questions? So for the a C client library, when it collects to the OVSDB server, it uses two collection or one collection? Uh, it only uses a single connection. A single connection. So uh, if we set a, a request and we want a synchronous result, and also the data change, uh, the data change uh, also sent back from that connection. Uh, right. Uh, so it would send the data change and the response uh, in, in some order, uh, depending on what order it, it processed the change. Uh, and in fact, there's a, if, if the transaction you send makes a change uh, to the database, then it always sends the update, if, if you're subscribed to a monitor, 
the update and then the result of the transaction. So when you get the transaction result, you've already seen the update to the database. The, the, the wrap changes, there are no, there are no uh, IDL facing differences between using wrap and not using wrap. So the IDL, to be really useful, it, it has to be aware that uh, that clustering is in use because it, it needs to know whether the database server that it's connected to is connected properly to the RAF cluster. Um, that if it's down as part of the RAF cluster, then it, it needs to go find one of the other servers in the cluster and connect to it. Uh, so there is some awareness that it's uh, connecting to a cluster, but it's fairly minimal change. But meant the, on the user-facing side, I don't think that there's... Oh, from the user of the client library, no. Uh, it, it doesn't have to care. Um, I think there's one setting. I added a setting uh, to the IDL where uh, the, the, the client can be configured either to only connect to uh, the leader in the cluster or to accept uh, connecting to any member of the cluster. And that, that comes down to really uh, if, if the client is going to do a lot of modifications or if the, it's very important to the client to make sure it has the very latest uh, copy of the data uh, in the cluster, then it would only want to uh, uh, connect to the leader. But, but otherwise, it, it's generally okay to connect to any member of the cluster. All right. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, and, of course, I can answer more questions later. OBS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org, or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.